Well, good morning. It's good to see all of you this morning. Thank you, Steve, for praying. Thank you, Gary, for leading us to a new song and walking through a, <clears throat> a biblical theology, even in the presence of God and of Zion, was helpful. And I appreciate it. If you would take your Bibles to Matthew 20. While you're turning there, let me read a passage of Scripture for you that is not Matthew 20. It is actually 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse, verses 8 through 13 says, Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons, if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Both the qualifications that are given in the New Testament for elder and deacon mention the idea of being above reproach or blameless. This is seen as a means of growth for the deacon and their standing in the church, but it also serves the witness of the church to, the outside, to those outside the church. And we want to take the scripture seriously and bring on men here at Calvary, <clears throat> who are above reproach and blameless. They are not perfect by any means. They know that more than anyone else. But they are irreproachable, meaning there is nothing about them or their dealings with others that someone can say this, see here, this man is not a good and wise person to serve in this role. There isn't that. So here at Calvary, we bring a candidate's name to you for one of these roles and give you about 30 days or so so that if you have been wronged or cheated or seen a character issue in a candidate, that you have time to bring that to the elders so that that can be taken care of, cleared up, seen best to not move forward with that candidate possibly in the process of them being an elder or a deacon. It is a good measure of protection for the church and for the candidate. This morning... <clears throat> I am overjoyed to bring a candidate to you to consider for the rule of deacon here at Calvary. About a year ago or more, the elders approached Nick Finger to see if he would consider becoming a deacon in the near future. Nick expressed a desire to serve the church. The elders followed up with Nick several months ago, and Nick filled out an application, turned in references, was interviewed by the elders, and the elders voted unanimously to bring Nick as a candidate to you for the position of deacon. The word deacon in the New Testament is diakonos, which is translated as servant. It is a role of serving the church, being a servant leader. And we have already seen Nick doing this for years now. Nick is a godly man who is transparent about his desire to grow more in specific ways. He loves his wife, Kimberly and Banyan, and it has been a joy to have his, also been a joy to have his parents, Randy and Beth, join our church this past year as well. Nick is a joy to work with in any capacity. He serves on staff here part-time. He regularly is helping with projects in our building, teaching Sunday school, being faithful to a life group, and more. If in the next 30 days or so, 
uh, for the next 30 days or so, please be in prayer for Nick and his family as they prepare for him to enter the role here of deacon at Calvary. And if you have any reason that you believe should be known or considered by the elders uh, about Nick, please bring those to myself or one of the elders. And we will plan to have a business meeting at the beginning of March sometime uh, to then vote on Nick uh, to serve in the role of deacon at Calvary. So maybe a round of applause. I don't know. feels appropriate. Leadership development has been something on the hearts uh, of the elders, something we've been working for, uh, toward uh, for a while now, and uh, continue to pray that in the next several months that God continues to bring candidates for deacon, for elder uh, here to serve in this church. And uh, may God add his uh, blessing to uh, that and to uh, the process that takes these next few weeks in considering Nick for this position. Would you stand with me as we read Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16 this morning? Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house, who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, They grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. You may be seated. We've heard several times in the Gospel of Matthew in this series that the kingdom of heaven is like field is like this or that. Multiple times we've heard this now. This is partly why uh, the logo for this series has a crown, a king. Uh, Jesus is the king over his kingdom, and that being the kingdom in which we live, and yet we currently also live as citizens of the kingdom of God in the kingdom of man as well. Jesus, in giving this parable, 
to those who are around them speaks again of the kingdom of God. Graham Goldsworthy, one theologian, defines the kingdom of God as God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. He traces this theme from Genesis to Revelation, seeing how even in the Garden of Eden, you have God's people, Adam and Eve, in God's place, the garden, under God's rule and blessing. You have the exact same thing all throughout redemptive history leading us to the time where we are with Christ in Zion, in the new Jerusalem, the new heavens, the new earth, and there we are God's people, in God's place, under God's rule and blessing for all of eternity, in His eternal kingdom. The kingdom of God is God's people, in God's place, under his rule and blessing. We see this all throughout scripture. Jesus, in speaking of the kingdom of God, is speaking of this aspect of salvation history that is his people seen all throughout scripture. His rule, his reign over his people. And he speaks of what the kingdom of God is like. And remember, as he's speaking in a parable, and this parable here is only recorded in Matthew. As he speaks in parables, we're not looking to fill in or find out all the details and what they stand for. We're looking for one message, for one theme, one idea that comes out of the parable. One commentator in writing on this parable considers this to be one of the three most difficult parables in the scriptures. You don't have too much information that is given. We don't know a lot of the whys, and we often try to make too much of the details. Too often this parable has been, <clears throat> been interpreted in ways that are not at all helpful. This parable has been given false views. One is that this parable represents the stages in life at which people experience conversion. So the workers who came earliest in the day are those like those who came to faith as a child. The workers who came the next shift are those who came to faith in adolescence, and so on, to where those who came in the 11th hour are just like those who came to faith on their deathbed. That's a false way of viewing this parable, taking way too much into the details that are given and allegorizing it. Some think the parable is demonstrating the abuse of peasants by wealthy landowners. Why would Jesus give a parable in regards to that? What other meaning might there be? Others have said that it is the Gentiles, that they are the latecomers, in contrast to the Jews who have had salvation for decades. The parable is not actually about the laborers at all. It's the parable of the wealthy landowner. All of a sudden, we find such outrageous generosity from a landowner who in all aspects of business and commercialization, in vineyard keeping, what he does would be considered insanity. You don't pay laborers who work one hour as much as you pay somebody who has borne the heat of the day, as they say, for 12 hours. You could easily save yourself a few bucks by only paying them for what they worked. All too often in this culture, you have it the opposite, where there was no labor trade union to protect the worker, and they could easily be taken advantage of. These were day laborers. The day laborers were ones who hoped for work each day, but there was no guarantee. A slave was better than a day laborer. 
A slave who had one master was better off with guarantee of work at least. But a day laborer might get hired today and might not tomorrow. Day laborers were paid at the end of every day because there was no guarantee they would work for the same master the next day. Landowners would hire workers and set a wage for those that they hired at the beginning of the day and then pay them at the end of that day and thus be done with their commitment to this person and their work. In first century Palestine, day laborers had no security. They had no guarantee. There was no social welfare program on which an unemployed man could fall back on. No one to protect their rights. And an employer could literally do what he chose with what belonged to him. Jesus mentioned that, didn't he, in the parable. When the person comes back and begrudgingly grumbles about the pay that he received, which is what was promised to him, Jesus said in verse 15, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? The landowner had the rights in and of his own eyes, not in God's eyes and not in the eyes of seeing everyone as created in the image of God, but in his own eyes and in his society to do just that. In such a setting as this, no work meant no food for the family. A denarius is a day's wage. What would get a family by, but not necessarily provide extra. The day laborer is needing work and is desiring to get hired early in the day to make a full day's wage. As we read through this parable, we found workers are hired at all different times throughout the day. The landowner himself goes out to the marketplace. Now, it would seem as often as he's going out, I think at least five times, that the marketplace ought to be pretty close to his vineyard, right? They don't have cars and other means of fast transportation to get about to go get yourself more workers. It seems quite impractical of the landowner to do this. The landowner either did not accurately calculate how many workers he would need in the beginning of the day, or he otherwise wanted to help those who would not have gotten hired. And so all day long, five times, he comes and he finds workers, and each time agrees to pay them something that would be right. Whatever is right, I will give you. He says to everyone, except those first workers of which he promised a certain wage. Whatever is right. You can imagine those workers who are there till the 11th hour, kudos to them for staying there for 11 hours. Why they weren't hired in the beginning of the day, we don't know. But again, that's not the point to know. It's not for us to know all of these details, and yet here are workers standing at the 11th hour with no hope of taking any money home to their families. Who's going to hire them for an hour? And who certainly would hire them and give them a full day's wage for one hour of work? Like the kid who is picked last for dodgeball, kickball, these men are desperate. These workers are desperate to be picked, even if it is at the very last, because anything is better than nothing. To go home with something, to be able to hold your head up and feel the sweat on your arms and on your face, and to feel the hurt in your hands maybe of an hour's work. 
to be able to feel as though you did something. The usual employment practices of the landowner is preparing the reader for something. Landowners don't go out and hire their people. A foreman might, but not a landowner, not a wealthy landowner. And he's not going to go out this many times. The original reader is picking up on this as unusual practices. The tension is mounting of why the landowner would be doing this. The laborers come, the laborers work, and at the end of the day, the laborers are to be paid. And so the landowner says to his foreman, pay them, but do so in the opposite order. Again, the original reader picks up, this is really strange. You always pay people when they come in first. The first ones who worked, they get paid first. They started the day. They can end the day before. We would all recognize the same thing in our own work schedules, maybe. I was here before they were. I've got to get going. Give me my money to let me go. Something is afoot. Something is changing. Things are turning upside down and on their head. These men who are day laborers are needing to get out, get their money, and go find food. That evening, they're subsistence living. What you make that day, you use that day. You eat that day. You purchase that day so that your family can live that day. The next morning, there's no guarantee of work that day or all week. But Jesus goes on to tell of the backwards payment practice of the landowner. The last workers are being paid first, and they are being paid the same amount as the first workers who were promised for working all day. The first workers hired early in the day are no doubt eager to see what it is that they're going to get. You can just imagine if you're anything at all like I am. You see somebody who's getting something for a little bit of effort, and you've put in a full day's effort. You're calculating, literally. Okay, let's just see. If they got this, it's at least going to be, it should be 11 times what they just got. Should be. And in our mind, we're going to grumble if it's not quite 11 times more, because we worked 11 hours more. And they mention it through the heat of the day. And you imagine in the Middle East, the heat is extreme, more so maybe than here. As they're working through this day, they're working for a denarius. All day long, they're working for a denarius. That's what they've been told. That's the deal. But now they're at the counting table. Now, all of a sudden, the foreman is paying his men. And now there's an issue where it might be more. Can you imagine? Might be able to not have to work tomorrow because I can make more today. This is one crazy landowner. Why is he being so generous to these who came late? Who cares? As long as I get my pay, as long as I get twice or four times or five times as much, I don't care what this guy's thinking, right? Like we said, the landowner commercially, business-wise, is a fool. You don't pay a man a whole day's wage for working one hour. Unless, however, the landowner is not merely paying for work received. You see, if all of a sudden Jesus, in giving this parable is already turning things upside down according to their normal practices, then why would it be that we'd expect the landowner to follow normal practices of why he's paying them? It might be that he's not at all paying for the work that they did. It could be that the landowner hired more workers because more people needed work. 
and he had money available to pay them. Maybe it wasn't that he had more work that needed to be done in his fields. Maybe they didn't do much. Maybe he didn't need it. Maybe he calculated exactly what he needed and hired that in the beginning of the day. And maybe the mercy and generosity of the landowner drove him back to the marketplace four more times that he might hire someone else. What if the landowner wanted to be generous instead of business savvy? What if his goal was not merely to get ahead, but to help others? Verse 15, is he able to do what he wants with what is his? So now comes the time where the tension has reached a boiling point. The first workers are to be paid. You can imagine the surprise when they're handed a denarius. That was the contract. And yet they're probably shocked. They're irritated. They're upset. They're grumbling. They grumbled at the master of the house and they're speaking to him. How dare you? We worked these many hours. And you offend us by giving these guys the same pay that we got. They are outraged. Couldn't the landowner pay whatever scale he deemed good and right? Sure. Couldn't he choose to pay based on need instead of what was deserved? Sure. But don't cheat me out of my bonus. All of a sudden, we see that the theme of or the meaning in this parable is not you get what you work for. You work for an hour, you get an hour's wage. You work for five hours, you get five hours wage. You work for a whole day, you get a day's wage. That's not the point of the parable. The point is that there is one generous landowner who does not pay according to the normal hourly wage and for the normal common practices, but who pays according to his own scale. There is a generous, wealthy landowner who pays in a way that is upside down to everybody else, who lavishes generosity on those who didn't deserve it. There is a generous landowner. There is one who gives far more. And everyone in this pay scale got the exact same, didn't they? No matter how much they worked, no matter how long they worked in the day, they all got the same. He didn't pay those who came last more. He gave them the exact same as everybody else. The same is true for all of us. The blessings of eternal life from the wealthy landowner, the one who owns it all, is the same. Some are not more saved than others. As one person has said, the ground is level at the cross. The first part of the landowner's explanation reinforces the message that no one loses out by becoming a disciple of Jesus. God is no one's debtor. The God who is generous far beyond what could be expected is also never less than just. But he doesn't work just by means of contractual obligations. But God's goodness is far more generous than that. The calculating comparisons of rewards by these workers who had worked all day and calculating maybe in their minds what they ought to deserve is a mark of a bad eye, which is an image for stinginess or jealousy that is seen here in this text. In verse 15, as Jesus, speaking from the landowner's position, says, Or do you begrudge my generosity? 
Literally, the text is, is your eye evil? Are you seeing wickedly? You're not seeing according to the standard that God has set. You're not seeing things according to the goodness and generosity of God. But instead, like me, you read this text and boil over with injustice for those workers who came first in the day. I put myself in their place, and I'm grumbling right along with them. I deserve more than these others do. I've been here longer. I worked harder. I did this. They didn't. The obvious place where our thinking must engage this parable is with issues of justice and goodness, not with the practice of hiring and all of those things, but as the goodness of the landowner. And too often when we see goodness done, lavishing of generosity or goodness to someone who in our mind doesn't deserve it, like those workers who are hired early in the day, we too can respond in anger, grumbling, irritated, upset, feeling as though we've been cheated, though all along this was the promise that was given to us. The life of God's kingdom with its focus on community and love within the community cannot be experienced as long as we are comparing ourselves with others, calculating what is due to us, being envious of what others receive. Even while we speak of justice, none of us is satisfied with average We always think we deserve a little bit more. The parable is about the goodness of God and His generosity. It asks us that we give up envy and calculation of reward and rather embrace and imitate God's goodness. That will mean we give up the quest to be first. That will mean that we don't desire to rise ourselves, push ourselves into a place that is above our uh, brothers around us or our sisters around us, knowing that God's standards are different. Just as the landowner turned everything upside down in his practice, so too God has turned the economy of the world around us upside down for the economy of the kingdom of heaven. That's what appears to be the first will be last. We might have missed it because last week, this is the beauty of preaching through books of the Bible and walking through them slowly maybe. You recognize you missed a couple of verses and you can go back and hit them. So last week, at the end of the sermon and I don't know, a couple days later, realized we didn't hit the last couple of verses. Nobody brought it up to me. Nobody told me. So maybe as though, you know, we just missed it. Okay. But they're good verses. Jesus said to them, chapter 19, verse 28, Truly I say to you, in the new world, uh, sorry, go up, we missed more than what I thought. Verse 25, when the disciples heard this, remember they're greatly astonished because of how difficult it must be for someone to be saved. And Jesus looks at them and says, with man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone, everyone 
who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last in the last first. What will we receive? Peter just wondering what, what reward is there for us? Imagine the answer he receives back is astonishing. This is what you receive. And so will everyone who leaves their family or their land or their material items for my sake. And Jesus says there in Matthew 19, we'll receive a hundredfold. A hundredfold of what? Commentators say a hundredfold of each brother's Sisters, fathers, mothers, children, land, a hundredfold of a community of saints around us to where it's not just me receiving a reward, but me receiving with you, all of you, a reward together, where now we inherit eternal life together. But many who are first will be last in the last first. And you noticed our text this morning ended the exact same way. The last will be first and the first last. Jesus turns the economy of the world upside down. It does not do for us to calculate or construct schemes of calculations, of hierarchies, assigning relative values to people or their work, thinking some deserve more, some deserve more grace than others because of what they do for the kingdom of heaven. Leave the rewards up to God. We inherit eternal life. God in His sovereignty will judge as He sees fit. God in His sovereignty will reward as He sees fit. A disciple of Jesus should not measure his or her worth by comparing it with accomplishments and sacrifices of others, but should focus on serving from a heart of gratitude in response to God's grace. Jesus is not denying degrees of rewards in heaven. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 14 speaks of that, but Jesus is affirming that God's generosity is more abundant than anyone would ever expect. All the labors, except the very first, got more than they deserved. Don't begrudge his generosity. Is your eye evil as an idiom to refer to jealousy? In the NIV, translate that verse and or that section of verse 15, are you envious of my generosity? The last will be first, and the first will be last. Human perceptions on ranking are without significance and will be stood on their heads in the kingdom of heaven. We will be shocked as to how things are doled out in the kingdom of heaven when we see Jesus face to face. All desire for ranking and calculations will flee. I don't think there'll be ever a desire for a reward. I don't think there's going to be someone with a house bigger than somebody else. I don't care what, what it is that we necessarily are doing. We're with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth for all of eternity. We sang of it this morning where there are no tears. I looked around the room a little bit. Call it peeking if you want. There were tears in this room singing that song. Happy tears of a day when the hard day and the hard week that you had, the difficulty of the weeks ahead, 
will be no more when all things are restored because of a God who is generous far more abundant than we could ever have imagined. One commentator says, in the kingdom of heaven, nobody earns their status. They may rightly expect a reward, but not necessarily the reward of preeminence. The kingdom of heaven, which operates by divine grace rather than human achievement, is a great leveler. Jesus, as the wealthy landowner, says in verse 15, Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Thank the Lord that Jesus, in his ability to choose what to do with anything, has decided to show grace and mercy to those who are least deserving. There's a difficult text in Romans chapter 9, verses 14 through 26, that often is taken and a very thought of, discussed in a very harsh way. The text in Romans 9, Paul writing there says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, says to Pharaoh for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he who has mercy, so then he has mercy on whomever, whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. We don't like that. But the, Paul goes on, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even in us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved and in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. Too often we can look at a text like that and see vessels prepared for destruction and the opposite aspect. And, and yet to see a God who is perfectly holy in an aspect of, in any way, preparing for glory vessels of mercy. He prepared them beforehand, it says in verse 23. Prepared them beforehand for glory. Even those people he didn't even call in the beginning. And yet these people who were not his people, he has made his people and lavished mercy and grace upon them. All too often we are able with, maybe as the analogy is given, the idiom is given, and here in Matthew 20 of the evil eye, to look at things askew. 
to look at things only in the way that we were raised to look at things, that our worldview told us to look at things. Our culture around us speaks to us of images of fairness or justice. And maybe all of that is turned completely right side up in God's economy. And in the kingdom of heaven, here you have a generous God who lavishes grace on these workers, on us, all the same, and brings us into his eternal kingdom. Not by easy means, not by means of merely doling out a denarius here and there at the pay table. But instead, the foreman doesn't just go to the table to pay the workers. Taking the analogy and continuing through the story of redemption, the the foreman in this story then goes and actually gives his life for the workers. You worked an hour, doesn't matter. I'm dying for you. You worked all day, doesn't matter. My blood is shed for the remission of your sins as well. But it's this morning as we see a parable on the wealthy landowner. See the generosity and mercy and grace of God who shows mercy and compassion to all, even to those who are most undeserving. Fanny Crosby, I'll close with this. She wrote a hymn, 1875, called To God Be the Glory. To God be the glory, great things he has done. So loved he the world that he gave us his son, who yielded his life and atonement for sin and opened the life gate that all may go in. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let the earth hear his voice. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let the people rejoice. Oh, come to the Father through Jesus the Son and give him the glory great things he has done. Verse 2 says, O perfect redemption, the purchase of blood to every believer, the promise of God. Do you know the next line? The vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. Great things he has taught us. Great things he has done. And great our rejoicing through Jesus the Son. But purer and higher and greater will be our wonder, our transport, when Jesus we see. This morning we have great opportunity to rejoice in the God who has lavished grace and mercy on us far beyond anything we could imagine. Jesus not only tells a parable about a wealthy landowner who is generous with day laborers, But Jesus is the one who owns everything. He is our maker. And he was generous with his own life for undeserving sinners. He came in extravagant grace and mercy to those who were greedy, exacting, and scrupulous. He did not send someone else to pay the cost of our sin, but he came himself in the flesh to take on himself our sin and our shame. This morning, we get to take and partake of Holy Communion together. To be able to, as the Scriptures say again, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, to be able to hold in our hands what Jesus says to His disciples, this is my body, which is for you. 
1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 and following say, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Remember this, my friends, as we will in a minute hold the bread in our hands, that the body of the eternal Son of God was broken for us. Paul continues, in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And remember, dear friends, as we hold the cup in our hands, that the blood of the Creator was willingly shed for you and for me, that we might have eternal life, life abundantly. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. This bread and this juice is only for those who have trusted in Jesus alone for salvation, to whom the body and blood of Jesus has atoned for their sins. Let us take a moment now to pray as Jesus says, as Jesus did, as he modeled for us in thanksgiving to our God who has saved us. Let us pray in confession of sins that still have a hold on our hearts and need to be turned from. And let us pray in commitment to live in light of the grace of Jesus, marveling at the over superabundant grace and mercy he has shed on us all the days of our lives. And this morning, may the Lord's Prayer be a model prayer for you to pray, for us to pray, as we enter into a time of silence, followed by music and then the partaking of elements together. May this be a model prayer that we might seek the mercy and grace of God. Would you join me as we read out loud together the Lord's Prayer this morning? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Would you take a moment of silence and be able to pray? And we'll come back, sing, and partake of the elements together. <clears throat> 